Hello, comrades, and welcome to the podcast you are currently listening to. I promise, this isn't a Russian invasion, just a temporary occupation. I'm Roberto, one of the hosts of the podcast, Czar Power. And I'm Brendan, the other half of the podcast. Together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. They will compete based on how well they fought, how successful they were in life, how much kompromat, or blackmail, they had on them, how handsome they were, and how long they ruled for. After being scored, we decide whether they get to party it out in the Kremlin or get sent straight to the Gulag. Those who make it to the Kremlin will need to duke it out for the position of best Russian ruler. You can find us on any podcast host as Tsar Power, on Twitter at Tsar Power Pod, and on Facebook as Tsar Power. That's Tsar spelled T-S-A-R. Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And if you hear a knock on your door, beware. The KGB is coming to make your stay a bit more permanent. Welcome to back at Ranking 76, where we're ranking 76 heroes and villains of the American West. I'm Eric. I'm Matt. And I am so excited. So excited. <laughs> another journey begins. One journey ends, another journey begins. I just, I just, I really, really like the core of Discovery. So that's going to be reflected in how long these episodes are. So... For someone, myself, for someone who never said he would break up into a two-part episode, I was more than giddy to break Meriwether Lewis up into three, so I didn't need to shut up about him. You did keep your promise. No more two-parters. We're making a (laughs) three-parter. Right. Three-parters, definitely. Now, the Core of Discovery returned in September 1806. So we're going to talk about them until then. <laughs> so we're going to do another three-part or three-person series. Meriwether Lewis is today. Then we're going to eventually move on to Sacagawea and then William Clark. And that will get us all the way up to the 23rd of September. So this will be the most we spent on one subject, but I'm so excited. I'm excited too. Yay! <laughs> What do you know? Tell me, tell me exactly what you know about the Corps of Discovery. They were tasked by the president yes. to explore the West. So they created a party and I believe they went in canoes down. I'm not sure. I can't remember what river and were mapping because they had like cartographers and everything with them. Right. Yeah, and they, they were, were like, first <laughs> oh okay yeah yeah that was them that was them <laughs> and uh they met a Sacagawea along the way yep and she helped guide them and their goal was to get to 
the ocean. Yes. That's pretty much it. All right, everyone. It's been fun. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> this three minute episode, <laughs> one minute each. <laughs> no, but it was uh, two, uh, the two of the, well, I guess the guys they hired were Lewis and Clark, but there were many people on the journey with them, right? Yes. Many dozen. Yeah, that's what I thought. And it took many, 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 many months, didn't it? Two and a half years. Oh, okay. Yes. So quite a bit. Yeah. Took, took a while, took a while. Uh, I think this is, I like this subject so much because it, I think one, I think it was one of the first history subjects that I first kind of stumbled onto, uh, back when I was a wee nerdy lad. Uh, and I also like, it's one of those subjects that like, if I'm trying to get anyone into history or they ask me like, what, what's something What's something easy to digest you can talk about? I talk about three things. Two of them are American history, and the other is all kind of shared. Uh, core discovery is obviously one. The NASA space missions to the moon, which are very similar. Actually, there's everyone compares these two. And then the third is the Titanic, just because they're very easy, concise, straightforward history. There's really not much context that goes into them. So I, I have the Titanic was just a movie. No, I mean, it was a movie, <laughs> correct. You mean it's a real event? Weird. I know, yes. It, it really was. Uh, singing and all. Rose uh, Rose really didn't move over for Jack, huh? It was she, big enough. She did. <laughs> really was. Poor Jack. <laughs> so, with all of that, are we ready? Let's dive in. Meriwether Lewis was born on August 18, 1774, to a wealthy slave-owning Virginia family. His father, Robert, fought in the Revolutionary War when he, when Meriwether was a very young boy, and for the first five, of his, five years of his life, doesn't really get to see him much. Even when Robert returns home from the war, he ends up dying of pneumonia, attempting to cross a flooded river. So, not a great start for Meriwether, but again, still affluent Virginia family. The family's going to be just fine. His mother, Lucy, marries John Marks in 1780. And Lucy Lucy Meriwether Lewis Marks, which is a heck of a long name to pronounce, but Lucy Meriwether Lewis Marks has five children, two were with her new husband, and she was a stern yet tender mother. The family claim, the family history claims that she even chased off British men with her rifle during the war and was tough enough to even be riding a horse well into her 80s. Her new husband, John Marks, moves the family to Georgia for a couple years, and when Meriwether is approaching 10 years old, Meriwether is exposed to the outdoors for the first time, and he would explore the areas around the house. Ever curious, he would ask about various herbs, foliage, animals, just happened to be in the area longtime friend and very important friend, uh, family friend, Thomas Jefferson, would recall of the young boy, quote, he was remarkable even in infancy for enterprise, boldness, and discretion. When only eight years old, he habitually went outside in the dead of night along with the dogs in the forest to hunt for raccoons and possum. In this exercise, not season nor circumstance would object his purpose, plunging through the winter snows and frozen steams in pursuit of object. He's a boy who liked to be outside. 
Family history also states that when Meriwether was eight or nine years old, he was facing a bull who was about to directly charge him. Meriwether said to have been as calm as he possibly can be and raised his rifle and shot the animal dead as it was charging him. He's as cold as ice. Didn't even flinch, did he? Not even for a second. Probably didn't even look. I'm picturing it. I'm picturing it where it's like falls and slides like centimeters from his feet, you know? As he's just staring it down. Yep. What? 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 <laughs> In another attack, the family is actually being surrounded by a surround by a neighboring tribe. And they survive because Meriwether is the only one who was aware enough to put out the fires that would give away their position. And they say this is the only reason they were able to survive the night. It's a smart boy. So they move down to Georgia. But as he gets to be 18 years old and as he is about to reclaim his family's inheritance, i.e. the plantation, along with their slaves, which is about 24. He ends up moving back to Virginia to claim the 2000 lands and actually starts running the plantation. Uh, not really ever going into formal education right away, uh, but really just running that plantation. There's a lot to manage there. So obviously talking about slavery, not the best thing. But he is uh, starting to show he's kind of an efficient manager doing that. The young master would spend hours on horseback meticulously keeping records over the crops of his corn and tobacco. But in 1794, Lewis answers the call when the Whiskey Rebellion breaks out in western Pennsylvania. And in a very brief summary of the Whiskey Rebellion... It comes around when Alexander Hamilton is pushing really hard to get a tax on whiskey. Now, the word tax in America by itself is a curse word, but for farmers in western Pennsylvania, it was quite literally the currency they used when they were trading. So if they were going to put a tax on it, they really thought it was an attack on them. So the farmers... Coin drummed up an old favorite, no taxation without representation, and they probably thought they were going to get away with it. They were going to rebel. They were going to use their, their new American spirit and take down this tax. And George Washington said, eh-eh. Even running the militia towards the men for a while, George Washington in 1794 is leading troops, not into battle, because that was never, he was never going to lead them into battle. But the statement was made. This had Washington's full backing. Let's go show the men. As he takes out his teeth. His teeth are already falling out, let's be honest. He's got the wooden chompers. He does not, but he does have dentures. Incredibly, incredibly painful dentures. So, Washington calls for 13,000 militia, and Meriwether Lewis is one of the men that comes up for the call. It isn't the easiest trip, as in Pennsylvania, there's muddy roads, desertion, and arguing over ranks riddles the newly formed militia. 
Even one month in, troops are already marching barefoot and there's shortages of food. But despite this, Lewis really takes a liking to the military career and the order that comes along with it. He said, quote, at this school, if I may term it as to where it would be equipped and tutored, shall this day draw all our countrymen our first lesson. We have mountains of beef and oceans of whiskey. I feel myself able to share it with the hardiest fellow in camp. I had last night the pleasure of supping with my acquaintances, uh, Captain Rudolph Company, that there is there as well. Remember me to all the girls and tell them that they must give me joy today as I am to be married to the heaviest musket in the magazine tomorrow. Everything's great, according to Meriwether. Was that basically him saying he's going to give his life to the army or the military? Yeah. yeah, he's really enjoying it. And for someone who is only about 20 years old, you know, 25 years old, I guess. Um, no, not even. He's about 20 years old, 1774. Yeah, 20 years old. Um he really takes liking to this way of life. Now, for the Whiskey Rebellion, um, it goes as you would expect. The farmers were like, oh, crap, they have real guns, and I think they want to use them. So that gets put down relatively quickly. Even those who were going to get brought up to trial uh, actually get pardoned by Washington. So... No harm. So basically, no yeah. So basically, it ended up being a uh, oh crap. They called our bluff. No one's we're gonna get in trouble. Just go about your business. This is happening. Just go on home. I don't think it was much of a bluff. I think they were like, you know what? This isn't worth dying over. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like the farmers said when yes. they formed the militia, like oh crap, they called our bluff. We're really not gonna do anything. Right, but bluff implies that they thought that they would, you know, just show force. Uh, they were real mad about it. They were willing to fight over it, but then they saw 13,000 uh, militia. They were willing to fight for it. They weren't willing to die for it. There we go. That's perfect. We're angry, but not, we're, you know what? We're not that angry. <laughs> we're not that angry. <laughs> we're not, let's start the next revolution angry. <laughs> one second thought. There's an awful lot of you. You know what? Let's just calm down. Whoa, 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 guys. We, we were bringing our pens. You're bringing your weapons. Let's, let's calm her <laughs> down a bit. It helps that they probably, the farmers didn't really have uh, much for guns. Probably just like a bunch of like pitchforks. There was an angry mob actually met an army and that, that, that wasn't good. When they were, when they arrived, they were probably like, oh, this, this isn't, this isn't the tavern. Oh, oh we were just on our way oh, to get a God. drink. <laughs> the, the angry farmers are that way, guys. <laughs> what do you mean? You look like, what is that sign that says death to Washington? What do you mean? You're not the angry farmers? I don't believe you. So all is well that yes. ends as well. Whiskey tax is an effect. Happened. In the spring of 1795, Lewis worked for delivering dispatches for Anthony Wayne. Now, it should be said, the army is downsizing because, remember, we're less than 20 years off of the heels of the revolution, where a standing army still scared a lot of people. So even as the army is downsizing, and when I say army, I mean the militia disbanded, but Lewis is still invited to stay on. He returns home for a while, but he ends up just staying on, which means he must have left a really good impression with whoever he was working under. So he ends up working under Anthony Wayne. Wayne is an interesting character in military American military history, but... 
he had some questionable tactics. One being, uh, he wouldn't explicitly tell men to settle their differences how they see fit, but he also wouldn't uh, say anything if they challenged each other to a duel. So by November, Lewis is actually brought up on court-martial charges for getting into a political argument with a man named Lieutenant Elliot. Lewis was drunk and during the disagreement was thrown out of the house and then, quote, later presumed the same day to send Lieutenant Elliot a challenge to fight in a duel. Whatever they argued about, it meant something. Lewis was later acquitted of the charges, but in the single court-martial, he may have changed history because Meriwether Lewis gets transferred to a chosen, to an elite rifle company under the command of William Clark. Unfortunately, not much is really written down about the two men's initial dealings with each other. They aren't even together all that long before Clark actually resigns from the army, and then Lewis is asked to go on a furlough so he can go back to his plantation for a time. But regardless... There must have been some type of positive interaction because the only time, the next time that they meet, they're going to be on the expedition. So Lewis returns home for a couple of, for a couple of years, for about 18 months, two years later, and then he returns back from his furlough and continues his reputation of being very punctual and known for his attention to detail. And by 1800, he is in charge of the regimental payroll. But in 1800, a life-altering event happens when Thomas Jefferson is elected president. Jefferson asked Lewis to be his personal secretary while he is in office, which is a heck of a pay bump, I'm sure. To but go he was for... also a family friend, right? He was, yes. There's definitely that. But to go favoritism, favoritism. Can't really call it nepotism, but yeah, favoritism is probably that. Those Virginians, they like to stick together. <laughs> so Jefferson is probably the most inquisitive president we've ever had. And Jefferson, I won't say is quite obsessed with the West, but he has some questions. Jefferson's own personal library may have been the biggest in the world of what may be out there. And what may be out there past the Mississippi River, he thinks, according to his books in his library, that the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia were the tallest on the continent. That mammoths and other prehistoric creatures still roamed in the upper Missouri River. Mountains of pure salt existed somewhere in the Great Plains. Volcanoes may be erupting in the Badlands. And... Most importantly, that there is an all-water passage that linked up the Missouri River to the Pacific. Now, that all-water route, remember, the Panama Canal isn't completed for another century. So in order to get goods to the West fast, you would have to literally ship them from the East Coast to go down towards the southern tip of South America and then up the Pacific Coast. Incredibly long boat ride. And treacherous, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, you are near the coast and you could, in theory, get to a coast. But yeah, um, it's it's not a short trip. It's thousands of coastal sailing miles. 
Making the situation more complex is the United States is not the only power on the continent. It will take James Monroe to declare manifest destiny, but Jefferson is already thinking that this continent needs to be all American, as in we need to control everything that goes on here. He has to contend with France controlling the middle part of the continent, known as the Louisiana Territory. The British claim modern-day Canada and have claims on the West Coast, and Spain controls pretty much everything else, so like the western border of Texas to the Pacific Ocean. The United States as a government is the newest territory and of the world powers are just kind of thinking, are just kind of hanging back and thinking to themselves, I wonder if this ex- American experiment is going to fail and we can just get the picture. Swoop in and grab it. Yeah. So Jefferson will do all he can to navigate these political waters. I'm going to restart that just for a second. So while Jefferson is trying to navigate those political waters, he has Lewis in mind when he invites him as his personal secretary. Because even in the letter he writes to Lewis, Jefferson's letter, according to Lewis, said, quote, not only an aid made to be private concerns of the household, but also to contribute to the massive information in which it is interested for the administration to acquire. Your knowledge in the Western country of the United States and all this interest in relations has rendered it desirable that you should be engaged in that office. This is much more than somebody going to get Jefferson coffee every day. There had been expedition beforehand, but to make things really brief, uh, they all failed, some spectacularly. Jefferson is determined to see what is out there, and he has Lewis studying things like medicine and botany, geography, anything that he thinks will be helpful to lead a small expedition, possibly of about two dozen men, to the West Coast and then back. But that's going to be a ways away. While Jefferson attempts to do all of this, Lewis's first task was to actually trim down the military, which I'm sure was just such a fun spot to be in. Hello, boys. I'm here to fire you. (laughs) Where are (laughs) y'all? Now, Jefferson, mm, he's not exactly above political fighting. In fact, he, he thinks Adams may have appointed just too many officers. Most of those officers may have had federal political leanings. So why don't we trim down some of the officers, eh? Sound like a plan? Sound good? Yeah, go ahead. Hey, Lewis, got a plan for you. Got a task for you. So Lewis starts trimming back some officers. Now, to his credit, he doesn't just consider political affiliation when he's trimming them. He does seem to use it as a tiebreaker, though. <laughs> hmm, is it between A or B? Well, I don't like this, dude, so be it is. Right. Also, Lieutenant Elliot. Oh, I, I don't. I never checked to see if Lieutenant Elliot had a job, but I can only imagine just how delicious that tea was for Lewis when he saw his name on that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that political fight, sir? Hmm. He just goes up to his ear. Gotcha. <laughs> Say my name. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> 
I'll show you to disinvite me from dinner. Outside of the duty, Jefferson and Lewis become very close in this time. Stephen Ambrose points out that both men are bachelors and they would dine with each other almost every night. Ambrose even believes that Jefferson even taught Lewis how to write as there is a clear difference in his personal letters pre-Jefferson as they were post-Jefferson. Now keep in mind that's going to make a lot of sense because Jefferson is going to be very, very interested in what Lewis has to say in just under a decade. Well, it makes sense if he's having him learn all this stuff. Right. I mean, you got to write down notes. Plenty of notes. So many notes and drawings and so many things. He wants him to write down everything. In fact, Lewis actually delivers the copy of Jefferson's State of the Union address that that will be read out loud to Congress. Now, Lewis doesn't write it, but this is where I am bound. I swear it's by contract every time somebody talks about Jefferson's State of the Union address that we need to say that this was the last State of the Union address that a president wouldn't give until Woodrow Wilson when he brought back actually reading the State of the Union address in front of Congress. Little tidbit. Interesting. So no one at, no one until Wilson would ever do a State of the Union again? Uh, they would do it in letter form. So Washington delivered it in front of Congress. Because, like, nowadays it's on television, right? Yep. And that's the one where the designated survivor goes in the bunker and yada, yada, yada. Yep, after all of Congress blows up in that one (laughs) TV show. No, no, that's a real thing. Someone really has to stay back. Oh, yes. I mean, I know it's a real thing, but, like, yeah. (laughs) Keeper Sutherland is the designated survivor, by the way. But, uh... So, okay, so before that, from then to the, uh, from him to Wilson, it was just like, here's the State of the Union, guys. Everyone would read it at, at their... Somebody would, read it. somebody would read it out loud for the president. Oh, like from the desk of the president, blah, 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 blah. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Only two more blahs, and then you have it exactly. <laughs> exactly what it was. Back to Louisiana. Jefferson would really like to at least acquire some land in the West, specifically New Orleans from Napoleon. Believing that Napoleon's consistent fighting with the British would leave him open to negotiating, and boy was he right, because not only is Napoleon ready to sell New Orleans for $10 million, he counteroffers for the entire territory for $15 million. So we only so so Jefferson only wanted a piece for ten? And Napoleon said, eh, throw in an extra five and we'll give you the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> Doesn't this go down as like one of the stupidest mistakes of Napoleon's entire life? Not really. I mean, it, some people do think it's a mistake, but when you think of it, Napoleon, there was no way for Napoleon to enforce French Louisiana. Right. Like, he wanted he wanted to like focus his efforts elsewhere, wasn't it? Yeah, he well he wanted to take Europe, which right. is a lot more appealing than whatever <laughs> the hell is in America at this point. So yeah, just take the whole thing. I could use the extra five million bucks that I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna use this land anyway, so what do I care? Steal of the century, ladies and gentlemen. Steal you're not it probably I can't think of a better 
land deal? Or what is, I've never looked this up, but if this isn't the largest peaceful act sale of that land ever, I don't know what else is. <laughs> peaceful, keyword, peaceful. Peaceful. Not it's a, not, with, a bl- not a blood not a drop of blood was spilled. No, well, not of uh, not of American. The British, there's plenty of blood spilled because <laughs> Napoleon cannot just focus on them again. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> plenty of Frenchmen, a lot of blood was spilled there too. But as far as Americans are concerned, yeah, peaceful. Just get them out of the way. Now, after Jefferson probably wakes up from fainting. He's concerned that this isn't constitutionally possible because it simply doesn't say that the president can acquire land. And then Jefferson probably thinks for four seconds, says, you know what, I'm going to sign this anyway. There's really no debate here. This is a you do not pass this up kind of deal. He was probably, his thinking was probably beg for forgiveness. I'm not going to ask for permission. Kind of. I mean, he's going to have to ask for permission anyway. But who would think he, who would think that's a bad deal anyways? I mean, come on. Exactly. <laughs> now, the Federalists will grumble because there's like the big debate is going to be not only with the Lewis and Clark expedition, it's like, what are we gonna do with all this? Like, congratulations, you just spent fifteen million dollars. What an incredible waste of money. But when you think of it, Jefferson just kicked out the French presence on the continent. Right, one less thing for them to worry about. One one less thing for Americans to worry about, too. Yes. And it pushes the border back another thousand miles. <laughs> like, it's a real big deal. Now the Americans have the most land in America, right? Uh, not really, no. Because you, at this point, you have to count uh, Spanish territory as all of Mexico, plus Texas, plus the rest of the northern border. Plus, the British have Canada. So, right. United States has just kind of came into uh, just kind of came into the conversation because they were just up until the Mississippi River, right? Okay. So, I know, like Jefferson is. If you actually look at Jefferson's presidency, it's outside of the Louisiana Purchase. There's not a lot of good things in it. <laughs> That was going to be my next question. Did that pretty much seal, like, was that Jefferson's, like, history as president? The positive history, yes. <laughs> <laughs> On that, you're really looking at, um, not the aliens of this next. Oh, goodness. That was Adams. I can't think of what. The Embargo Act. You're looking at the Embargo Act and like Jefferson really just kind of flared up tensions with the British because the British were starting to press ships. Uh, that will eventually lead into the War of 1812. That's another podcast to, to worry about. So we're we're stopping that conversation right there. But yes, uh, Jefferson, the rest of Jefferson presidency isn't that great. However, if you're looking for a deep dive, presidencies of the United States literally has uh, like 40 episodes just on the Jefferson presidency. So go go check that out. It's very good. So Jefferson goes in after, all in after purchasing. Also, keep in mind, we just kind of jumped the timeline a little bit. So we're talking about the negotiations for the Louisiana Territory are going on right now, as far as Lewis is concerned. Now, he is starting to gear up towards West. So he, Jefferson is starting to negotiate 
And now he's telling Lewis, you really need to ramp up. This is what we need to do. Jefferson is so adamant on exploring the territory that he's even going to open up a presidential line of credit that would be backed up by the president's offers. And he hands that to Lewis. Free checkbook, boys. Blank check, yep. (laughs) From the president. That's a retirement fund and a half, let me tell you. (laughs) Now, you can base this entire expedition based on economics with the goal of finding the Northwest Passage. But barring that, it's also a pretty good idea to make good relationships with Native Americans who lived in the territory. That was just as important. At this point, France and Britain had far better relationships with natives when it came to trading, and Jefferson wanted in. If the tribes would trade with the Americans instead of the British, British may lose interest in the area, which would make it just that much easier for the United States to control. An always meticulous Lewis plans the expedition by gathering plenty of ink, powder and ball, and muskets. And most famously, a very, very powerful laxative made by Dr. Benjamin Rush that was called Thunderclappers. <laughs> uh, and then it would be nicknamed Rush's Thunderbolts. So whatever the thing <laughs> did, it did it real well. You're not going to listen to me? Bring on the Thunderbolt. <laughs> no! Oh, the, no, the other reaction is, yes, give me, the, I'm not feeling well, give me a Thunderbolt. And then uh, there was nothing left in their system by the end. But we'll get into that later um, a couple of times. In order to transport the Missouri River, Lewis designs a keelboat, and he takes a lot of pride in this keelboat. He spends a fair amount of time designing it and is so detailed, the planning actually starts frustrating Jefferson. <laughs> you almost <laughs> the point. Like, do you know, like, when a kid comes up to you with a drawing that they're really proud of or, like, a plan that they're really proud of, like, look what I did, look what I did, and then they draw a little bit more on it and they show it to you again? That's kind of what Meriwether Lewis is doing to Jefferson. Now, the boat itself would be 55 feet long, about 8 feet wide, would have a shallow daft to make it easier to navigate in the river. It would have two separate 32-foot high masts that would join near the base so that it could actually be lowered whenever the wind wasn't going. The mast would then support a large square sail that would have an, uh, then the boat would also have an elevated deck at the stern or the back of the ship that could also accommodate a cabin. The hold would be about 31 feet in length and could carry up to 12 tons of tar- of cargo. In order to help assist the movement, there would be 11 benches, each three feet long, that would be used by two oarsmen. Lewis and Clark historian Donald Jackson described the keelboat as, quote, a useful and ungainly craft. They would boat up 10 to 20 tons of cargo, and it was faithful, wallowing drudge. Arm it with a swivel gun and set a gun with firearms on the whale on the gunwales, and it, it becomes a little warship. Navigating it, navigating it down a stream was easy if you kept an eye out for submerging logs, which going upstream, there would be no ideal way of keep moving it up. If the wind 
was fair. You ran up the sail. But if the wind failed, you then had to bring out iron-pointed setting poles and start pushing. So literally, if there's no wind, you would take a long stick that you would put into the riverbed and you would walk the length of the deck to get this thing moving. <laughs> oh yes that sounds exactly what i want to do <laughs> and if that didn't work you got out a rope and you went to the shore or to the shallow end of the riverbank and, and walked it and you pulled it oh my god i guarantee they did all three well maybe two <laughs> there's like no wind <laughs> no matt you know the missouri river we're not there yet but you know the missouri river what direction does it go down south it heads south what direction are they going up <laughs> <laughs> oh no they're going up north <laughs> so they're going against the current the whole time or what yes they are <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry, guys. This is easy. I promise you. Said the captain. I wonder, like, I wonder how many times they walked the deck and then realized they were in the same spot. Oh, <laughs> like, no. wait, what? No, I've seen that tree. We've been here the last day, the, the hour ago. Yeah, so we've only moved 10 feet in four hours. I don't know. Like, I quit. Oh, my God. How many of those, how many of these ships did they take? Or just build? one. This is the one keel boat. Oh, okay. So they just, they just built one. It's just the one. Cole, it's going to take a lot of men to move this thing down if there's no sail or if there's no wind. So then, what? okay, so was it his idea to this be the only ship they take? Uh, yes, they would take this, the, the main ship. They're really going to rely on canoes and then slightly bigger canoes that could hold a sail called a P-Rogue. Okay. So... So they knew he knew when designing it that this was going to be the main ship, and then they were going to have a bunch of like littler ships with them, or boats yeah. rather, not ships. This boats. is the main ship, just really for the first season as they're going down the Missouri. Like that really is the plan. Okay, but this is to get because you need. I mean, we'll get into it in a bit. You need so much stuff <laughs> to get there. Well, and they were also. I mean, no one knew how long it was going to take. So they want to bring as much supplies as humanly possible before you have to start surviving on the wilderness. Yeah. I mean, they they had a they had a pretty good idea. So where the mystery was, they had a pretty good idea up until basically modern day Bismarck, North Dakota, where the Mandan villages were. That was the the first goal to get to in the first season. You go all the way up the Missouri to the Mandans, you'd camp with the Mandans, and then after you get to the Mandans, uh, anything west of that through the Rocky Mountains and basically going all the way up to the Columbia River was a big question mark. This is where they believe the volcanoes were, woolly mammoths still walked around. That's what they're really exploring. Because even the Pacific Coast at this point, again, you could get goods up to the Pacific Coast. People knew about California and Oregon. They just didn't know what was in between Mandan, the Mandan villages, and the Columbia River. It's like when you play a video game. The map is cloudy. You got to uncover the map. Very cloudy. <laughs> you're not far off. Like, you're really not. So did um, we have, did we, well, I say we, like, did Americans have, 
a good rapport with the Mandans then? Not really. Or but was the- it kind of a, let's just show up like an unannounced guest and just be like, we're staying with you. Well, Matt, this is America. We're just going to show up whenever we want guns. Oh, well, I forgot. <laughs> we, we, own the, we own the land and the houses, uh, whatever they're living in. They not, just are paying us rent. <laughs> yeah, not not yet we don't own it. Because remember, we did jump the timeline a little bit. Napoleon is still like pondering. Jefferson really wants Louisiana. Now he's going to send Lewis out anyway. Because at the very least, Jefferson is trying to get trade negotiation going with the Indians. So Jefferson is in negotiations with Napoleon. He turns to Lewis and says, you're going. Yes. So this is before, so he uh, he leaves before the deal's done. Not yet, no. No, okay. he doesn't. Okay. We'll cover that very shortly. So again, after your, after like your example within the video game, when you're trying to travel, like fill in the map, essentially, you're trying to uncloudy the map. Once they get to the Pacific Ocean, Lewis would then do one of two things. They could either go back the way they came or... If possible, they would find a trading vessel that they could then ship the the journals and all of that past Southern Tip and then back up, which is like plan A, because there's really no guarantee that they're going to get back. So to send a copy uh, over there would be would be ideal. So they were they were honestly willing to make it a one way trip. No, the goal is always to come back. But right. But worst case scenario, they're stuck out there. They knew they would get back, but whether they. When you say well, stuck, like they could very well die on this journey. Oh yeah, they're gonna take twenty. The plan is right now to take two dozen men plus Lewis, and hopefully they all come back. And whatever happens, happens. Kinda like you knew the risk going into it, or Lewis knew the risk going into it. Like this was not going to be easy. There is a reason. There is a big question mark over basically a third of the United States. Was Jefferson just like, whatever you do, give me your journals. <laughs> I don't yeah. care who comes back. Just give me what you write down. I don't care how bloodstained the pages are. I need these journals back. <laughs> and these journals were quite literally government property. We'll get into that like at the very on the third episode. But these journals did not belong to Lewis and or Clark. They were government property because it was a government-sanctioned uh, expedition. He, Jefferson, stamped on the back property of the U.S. government. Yes, thinking he was never going to get to the co- the uh, the back the back cover. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't see that. You didn't see that. <laughs> so so far, Lewis. The plan is for Lewis to bring them bring out about two dozen men. Right. As they're planning and they're finding out the full scope of this expedition, Lewis realizes he's going to need a partner. And he eventually remembers way back in his military today days, uh, William Clark. Again, not much is written down, which would have been real handy. But Lewis writes to Clark, quote, he expresses with an anxious wish that you consent to join me in this enterprise. 
He has authorized me to say that in the event of your accepting his premonitions that he will grant you a captain's commission, which of course will entitle you to the pay and annulment attached to that office, and you will equally with yourself entitle to you as such a portion of land as was granted to officers of a similar rank for your revolutionaries for their revolutionary services. Your situation, if joined with me in this mission with all respects, will be precisely asked as my own. So basically, come on with me. You get land. You get a captain's rank. Yes. So he's getting a promotion. He's getting land. He's getting more money. He is an equal on this expedition. Which oh, is- and that, that was the last thing he said. And like, you're with me on this. You're not like, I'm not in charge of you. Right. Which, if you think of it, a military man offering co-commandership kind of a big deal right and they you almost have to assume they're like this is a big deal like we're going to be attached to this forever depends on who you asked because you have plenty in congress at this even at this point that are saying things like who cares (laughs) like we have enough problems to deal with on our own why do we care what's out there like, there's right. no forward thinking. You're always going to have those people that are, like, right. doubting and not wanting expansion, though. Right. So think, like, Jefferson really is kind of the minority, which is, like, Jefferson is is routinely listed as a top 10 president. And honestly, this achieved, the Louisiana Purchase alone, which he hasn't bought yet, by the way, officially in, this, in our timeline, this... That alone is good enough to put him in the top 10 for me because it is such a monumental move to go from the Mississippi River to basically uh, the Rocky Mountains. Like, it's such a big deal. That that in and of itself is probably why he's in a lot of people's top 10s, though. Right. I mean, they also there's also some because he is the man that came up with the Declaration of Independence, which is a pretty big deal. He wasn't like, president then, though. He was not. Nope. The, well, there wasn't a presidency there to be had. Right. But Jefferson's like overall career gets kind of pushed onto his presidency and people just assume, oh, it's Thomas Jefferson. He was a great president. And then you look at it and you're like, well, there's the Louisiana Purchase and uh, political fighting. And <laughs> the embargo act. <laughs> and he wasn't really the best speaker or communicator. Um, he didn't. But by golly, the Louisiana Purchase. But let me tell you, that Louisiana Purchase was a really big deal. <laughs> he basically went up to Napoleon and was like, "Hey, what up, Boo? I'm taking this. Here's some money. You're welcome. You're lucky I'm giving you this much." So yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a mixed bag with his expedition. Jefferson really wants it, but he's about the only one that's pushing for it. So he's the only one that really has the forward thinking enough to, like, we need to expand our borders here. Americans are already starting to move west, but Jefferson realizes there's only a limit to the Mississippi River. And what do we do if they start pushing off into French territory? Okay, so that's what I was just going to bring up. So obviously they keep pushing west, right? what did happen if they were to push over into like French territory and stuff where they just become like, that's the French now or. 
Uh, or you're squatting, essentially. Yes. <laughs> you're illegally here. Yes, <laughs> that's what would happen. Uh, you then also got to, re- like, then you also, like, now you kind of got to deal with Napoleon. That sounds terrific. Like, I don't know. I would be thinking, yeah, because he's going to come find me in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Well, that's eventually going to be Napoleon's point, and that's why he's going to be so willing to give up Louisiana territory. Because, yeah, it's just, it's, you can't protect that long of a border. Right. So That huge uh, land, like that huge area of land, there's no way you can, without like a giant force. Right. And when you think Napoleon is already battling the British. So like you can kind of see like the fear of the Americans, because honestly that could is quite literally an international incident. If you have people going on to other territory and just taking and settling land, like we're going to see that in the Texas revolution to a bit that we've already talked about that the Americans just kind of came in, didn't like some of the rules the Mexican government was coming up with, and then just started a revolution. Now, that's 30 years into the future at this point, but it's not unreasonable to think that's going to happen. Right. Well, it's easy to think it's easy to see both sides. Why this was a mutually beneficial agreement. Were were there even a lot of were there even a lot of French like occupying the land or was there none? Oh, <laughs> it was a lot of empty space, which okay. is kind of Napoleon's point. Okay. So I figured it was a mutually beneficial ideal or far. It was a mutually beneficial deal for both sides. It's only, you, you kind of have to read the fears on both sides, but also know that both of those, they didn't know each other's fears at that same point. Right. So we just mentioned that Lewis offers Clark co-commandership of the expedition. Not a second. He's not a Lieutenant. He is a co-commander. It's not entirely known if Lewis asked Jefferson this. So he might have just been talking out of his ass? He knew he wanted, he knew Clark needed to be a full partner. But it's not entirely known if Jefferson gave him permission to offer him. Ooh, spicy. So, on July 4th, finally we can say... The treaty announced the Louisiana Purchase on July 4th, 1803. Woo! So now we can stop jumping the timeline, and hopefully that didn't just confuse people a bit. I think it was a good discussion, but we did kind of jumble around like from here and there. So we pulled a witcher. We did, yes. I've never we seen We had it. multiple timelines going on at the same time. Kind of. It's all very related. It's also like... And, I feel like that tracked, but if it, it hopefully that made sense for everyone. So, but now that the land is officially announced as a done deal, well, now this expedition really takes importance for Jefferson. And even they were planning this anyway, but on July 5th, Lewis heads out to Pittsburgh to really start the expedition. Now, that's kind of a coincidence. He was leaving that day anyway. But it's nice on July 4th, it's announced. And then the next day, Lewis is literally leaving to basically go and design the keel boat. Oh, so they, he wasn't even designing the boat yet. Boat's not built yet. 
built it's being built at this moment this is where lewis is going to meet the shipbuilder right and finalize and get going essentially yeah so he's going to really start the recruiting the 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 dress rehearsal if you will right right he's going to recruit men he's going to get the boat ready he's going to get a bunch of supplies he's all learned it and stuff and he's ready to go he just needs to get the pieces in part so he can all go he still hasn't heard back from Clark. He just sent out that letter. So again, this is very beginning stages, but the expedition just took importance, a much bigger uh, importance. It just became the top to do. Yes. Well, for Lewis anyway. Right. Lewis arrives in Pittsburgh on the 15th and expects to find the boat nearly completed. However, the contractor claims that he couldn't find the proper timber, but promise that the work would be done by July 30th. And Lewis, remember, the very particular man who wanted things exactly uh, now has to wait two, two more weeks. He's not thrilled by it, but fine. I guess I'll just deal with it. Construction, fallen behind since 1803. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Lewis writes to Jefferson. So Lewis writes to Jefferson saying that, well, there's a complication, but by quote, by no means sanguine, I will visit, I visit him every day and endeavor by every means in my power to hasten the completion of the work I have prevailed on him to engage more hands. I shall embark immediately when the boat in its readiness because that's not an annoying to a, a person <laughs> building something. You're done. You're done. You're done. Oh, no. You're done. You should get more help. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Probably just like, do you know that meme of, uh, or that gif of Grandpa Simpson going into the bar, entering, saying hello, putting his hat on the coat hook, and then picking it up. Picking up. That's, that's what Lewis is doing. He's probably just spinning around in a circle. Are you done? No, I noticed I noticed the ship is in the exact same state as it was. Yep, it is seven in the morning. I, I'm in my pajamas still. <laughs> He's peeking in his window. Sir, is my boat done? I do not see that you were completing my boat. Yeah, he's just outside just tapping. Tink, tink, tink on the glass. Yup, yeah. Yup. <laughs> He's just pointing at his wrist. There's no watches, no wrist watches, but he's just pointing like, hey, hey, deadline. What's going on here? The fact that he even said that I've been checking every day. It's like, God, you're one of those guys. Huh? <laughs> Which there's, there's two different ways of reading that. There's, that's exactly what Lewis was doing. But like, anytime I get an email from someone saying that, I always think one of two things. One, you're right. <laughs> or, or are you just saying that, or are you the one procrastinating and blaming it on someone else? Right. He's really chilling. He's really chilling, parting it up in Pittsburgh, you know? Okay. While waiting on his boat, Lewis uses his time to benefit the eventual uh, core discovery. He recruits, he sends for recruits a couple weeks back, and the first seven show up in Pittsburgh on July 22nd. And it isn't long before Lewis realizes, well, that, you know, that boat maker we were just on his side of, 
Turns out he may have a bit of a drinking problem. Oh, no. <laughs> he also isn't much of a morning person. Um, and according to Stephen Ambrose, he didn't work many Monday afternoons. <laughs> I'll have you know, I don't work Mondays through Thursdays and all of Saturday. <laughs> you can just imagine the look on Lewis's face. Probably just punching anything that came near him. He is this angry. But there isn't much he can do about it. Apparently, this is really the only boat maker capable of making this size of ship to this exact specifications. And it's not like he can just put the half-completed ship on his back and bring it to someone else. He's stuck with this guy until it's done. So it gets to be July 30th, where he said he would be done. And the boat maker proudly proclaims that you have a boat. Next week. Next week, I promise. We're going to get to that. <laughs> August 5th, man. That's the absolute latest. <laughs> it's a boat when it's almost ready. <laughs> it's, it's a boat. It just can't stay above water. I don't understand what's going on. Maybe I should cover up all of these holes. But in between, Lewis gets a reply back from Clark. Isn't this exciting? Clark writes back, quote, The enterprising company is which I shall have long anticipated and such pleased with, and in my situation in life will admit in my absence and length of time necessary to accomplish such an undertaking, that I will cheerfully join you in an official character as mentioned in your letter, and partake in the dangers, difficulty, and fatigue, and I anticipate the honors and rewards which will result in such an enterprise. This is an undertaking frightened with the difficulties, but, my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip and company as yourself. What happened when they first met? <laughs> I would love to know, but that's a really it sounds nice like they're best friends. Maybe they, maybe they just maybe the text messages just didn't get saved past 30 days. I thought you were going to say the letter said. New number, who this? <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. Ooh, sorry. I actually found someone else. I don't know. Meriwether Lewis. Meriwether. Where have I heard that name before? <laughs> you know, it is much easier to ghost in 1803. <laughs> <laughs> no, the exact opposite. He's will. He's not only does he, is he willing to do it? He's very excited for quote, Cheerfully join you in the official character you mentioned in your letters. As in, I would love that commandership. Thank mm -hmm. you. While Lewis is like, yeah, great. Jefferson knows all about it. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's going to be fine. <laughs> and I'll tell him about it after. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's August 5th. And Lewis comes to the boat maker. And the boat maker is like, we almost have a ship. <laughs> Oh my God! So now, now it's over a month late. We're, it's but it's almost there. It's almost ready, but he's going to need until August thirty first. <laughs> Holy jeez! Lewis wrote to Jefferson. Lewis wrote, "Quote, but neither threats 
Pervasion of persuasion of any means could I devise such sufficient to procure the completion of the work sooner than the 31st of August. And by threats and pervert persuasion, I probably just smack the hell out of him for a bit. <laughs> that wh empty whiskey bottle came right in handy to take his frustrations out. Whoa, gosh. They're leaving, going to be leaving really late, too. It's already going to be autumn. Uh, yeah, late August. We're getting now. Keep on. They know how to get. They just got to get up the river, which sounds a lot. Well, they got to just get to uh, what? Modern day Bismarck? Yes. That's where they were. That was always their. They're in Pittsburgh right now. They haven't recruited. So like they're behind, but they're about they're only like a month behind. Right. Not to the worst. And also keep tell my, that to the Donner Party. OK. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have a point. But they can always push this off. It's not great. Jefferson isn't going to be happy about it, but that, that right. is possible. Maybe to calm his nerves, Lewis does what all of us do when we're incredibly stressful and incredibly angry. He gets himself a Newfoundland dog. <laughs> I'm getting a puppy. <laughs> and Matt, this is where I'm going to need you to be very, very mature. Are you ready? Are you mature? Yep. You ready? Got your mature hat on? He names the dog Semen. Sticky, sticky Semen. Oh, <laughs> just kidding. I can describe it like that. <laughs> They're dogs. They get messy, you know? Messy, they get all, not sticky. They get all <laughs> slimy and slobbery and gooey and. Uh, I'm kidding. This is no, you're not. This is where I was gonna make the really bad joke and was gonna say, like, can you imagine like trying to get that dog to get over to you? It's but come on, Seaman. Come on, Seaman. Come here. Come here. <laughs> I would like to think anytime, like, come here, Seaman, come here. There was just this quick little <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where. <laughs> dog's name is Seaman. That is a kind of a dumb name. I mean, I don't. <laughs> He's a nice dog, Matt. It's a very, very nice dog. Seaman will also be coming around on the expedition. That was my next question. He was, yes. There's, there's a puppy. He will be coming Damn. around. So again, there's more silver lining as Lewis is trying not to kill the shipmaker. There is some silver lining on the forever wait for the keelboat. Clark is able to recruit some more men. But obviously, Lewis and Clark are not in the same town anymore because Lewis quite literally needs a boat to go anywhere at this point. So Lewis is going to meet him farther down the river. And during August, as Lewis is just waiting and waiting, he starts making a few pirogues or buys a few pirogues, which is basically a larger canoe. He then starts to lighten the load from the keelboat. And has those things packed and ready to go. Now, when Lewis said that it has to be ready by August 31st, this is the last chance. The final nail went in at 7 a.m. on August 31st. And by 10 a.m., Lewis had that boat loaded and they were going down the river. <laughs> right when it was done, he threw in all his gear. So, okay, so... 
they had to have been speaking to each other though because i was just thinking about this if clark was recruiting men in virginia he had to have told lewis about it so they don't like show up with like 80 men yes <laughs> right <laughs> so then so what when the ship was almost done is that when um lewis like recruited the guys because if he had how many how many lewis only uh, had clark is the one recruit taking recruiting right now because also lewis is buying supplies or is gathering supplies so how is lewis getting all the boats then to down the river he had, I mean, would he have, had to have men right okay he has a few men with him He's already recruited them because he had plenty of time to do it. Right? He better have. He better not have been dinking around. This is also when they take when Lewis takes off from Pittsburgh. This is also the first entry into the Lewis and Clark journals. August thirty first, ten a.m. Finally. And <laughs> so I hid the body. And <laughs> so Lewis gets three miles down the river when he picks up a fancy new toy. This toy is an air gun that was made by a blacksmith. The air gun is quite literally how it sounds. It would actually build up five or six hundred pounds of pressure in the back of a chamber where you would literally pump it like a BB gun and then you could fire it. And you would like to think Lewis still had the shipmaker in his mind because he fired the gun seven times at 55 yards with quote, pretty good success. That is until the gun accidentally went off and passed through a woman's hat. Oh, damn. So it could kill someone. Yeah. Yes, it could. Okay. Also made no sound, and there was no black powder. Like there was no uh, poof of smoke. Wow, the first sil- the first ever silenced rifle. And it almost killed a woman. <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't have seen. She wouldn't have heard it. No, she wouldn't have. That poor hat. That's where Bass Reeves actually got the idea to shoot his hat. <laughs> right. Exactly like. <laughs> They travel down the Ohio River and gather supplies at various stops throughout September 1803. And it's a pretty good test for the keelboat just to make sure it could withhold whatever it needed to go through. And on October 15th, Lewis finally meets up with William Clark in Clarksburg, Virginia. And for the first time in their military days, they're together again. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. I knew you would do that. I knew it. You were baited. And it worked. The two time, the two men don't waste much time reminiscing because uh, they're already about six weeks late. <laughs> so Clark, nice to see you. Yep, yep, yep. yep hop in. Right we're not we're not stopping. <laughs> they're just running down the riverbank. <laughs> Jump in. Come on, Seaman, you're behind. <laughs> so, so as they start going down the Ohio River, they start heading up the Mississippi River. And this is where they realize they're going to need a lot more men. Apparently, the long pointy sticks to go to the bottom of the Missouri River to pull up the boat 
Um, it's going to take a lot of men to do, and they're not even on the Missouri yet. How many men do they have at this point? A couple dozen? Yeah, like two dozen, which is about the original plan. So, yeah, they are making, after eight hours of pulling, sailing, what have you, a good day was 10 miles. Oh, my. 10 miles a day? <laughs> right. Um, anybody nowadays, 10 miles in a day? You're going, what, what happened? Were you walking? Uh, you can walk 10 miles in probably six hours. I was, I was actually just going to say, actually, I think you can go farther if you walk. It is quite literally walking speed. Now, keep in mind, they're going to be against the current for a real long time. Possibly up to the Continental Divide, where they're going to find that, the, the Northwest Passage. They reach St. Louis in early December 1803, where they start to recruit new men. St. Louis used to be the edge of the United States, but thanks to the Louisiana Purchase, it's now kind of in the middle. This is the last major trading post on the expedition is going to see before heading into the Louisiana Purchase. The expedition, again, isn't completely in the dark. They meet a man named McKay, who has a map that will take them to the Mandan villages in modern-day North Dakota which is huge, as they hope to make it before snowfall. Now, it's December now, so obviously they can't take off at this exact moment, but they can use the season and they can get up there. Outside of this monumental task, Lewis has another worry. The commission for Clark hasn't came in yet. In oh, fact, no. no commission for Clark has come in yet. There is no word on what Clark is at this point. As a member of the military, I can say to this day, <laughs> it's the exact same. Things take forever. We have promotions that are like effective date of rank, March 13th, and it's like July. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> They stay around St. Louis through the spring of 1804, during which they witness the formal transfer of Upper Louisiana to the French, to the United States. And what, I don't quite understand why, <laughs> but they also throw the, so like, they had a Spanish fort there. <laughs> so they, they're almost like, you know what, I bet, I bet Spain, they just feel a little left out. So they actually let the Spanish kind of in on it so there's two transfers on the first day spain lowers its flag to raise the french tree color only to lower it the next day and then raise the american flag <laughs> so because in very typical military fashion there was never an exchange in the first place they were behind <laughs> You're probably not wrong. But I just like that thought. Like, in a deal that dealt with the Span the, the French and the Americans. I mean, Spain, you wanna you wanna come in? I can just see there's like three three Spanish people in the fort, like still guarding it, like they were never told. They were never told, you know? And then they come up, they're like, wait, what's going on? Hey, yeah, yay. Uh, okay. Okay, fine. 
well, we don't need to do this, but I guess if you would like to take part. I was going to say, what was the, like, official, like, transfer? Was it, like, did they pull out a big rope and, like, scissors? <laughs> it yeah. is now yours. <laughs> well, that's where they obviously opened up the uh, the big arch in St. Louis. Obviously oh, yeah, the gateway, right? The gateway. Yep. I was been there the whole time. The prehistoric steel structure, whatever the heck that thing's made out of. Complete with elevator and everything. <laughs> yeah. Just a lot, uh, just a bunch of men with ropes. That's how they made the elevator. Maybe. <sighs> you know what? It was probably the three Spanish dudes that was lifting the elevator. And that <laughs> you are relieved. Oh, thank God. It's your, it's your job now. So actually, then raising the French flag all the way up that arch. That took a lot of pulling. That probably did take a while. So it wasn't like they just raised it. It took 12 hours to raise it all the way up there. And then by the time it got up there, they had to lower it back. All down. right. Now lower it back down. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> well, no, it just, got, it just got up there. What is the matter? So after the official transfer, the Corps of Discovery is now ready to leave. Their men that make up the Corps of, Ex the Corps of Discovery are young, inexperienced men but with a lot of wilderness experience on their own. Most of them were farm boys. Most of them are plucked from obscurity. There are some military men, such as John Ordway, Patrick Gast, and a newly promoted Charles Floyd. They will leave St. Louis with approximately 40 men and would even take one translator named George Drouillard. While they're in St. Louis, there is nothing for the men to do but drill and be bored. And if there's nothing like a bored young man, what do you think happened? They party hard. They party hard. Uh, they also break out into fights. Oh, yeah. While Lewis is away, Sergeant Ordway had to tell Lewis that Privates Reuben Field and John Shield refused guard duty because they would not take orders from anyone other than the captains. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Four others went off hunting when in reality they just went to go get drunk. Drunk soldiers aside, after months of waiting for Clark's commission, Lewis finally has it in hand. And he opens it up and he's really excited until he reads that Clark has been offered a lieutenantship. Remember, Lewis offered a captainship, complete partnership. And now officially, Clark is number two. The letter was written by the Secretary of War and Clark would still be paid as a captain, but his official reward would be that of a lieutenant. Uh, would be that of a lieutenant. But Clark would still be paid as a captain, but his official reward would be of a lieutenant. It is unsure if Jefferson cared about the co-captainship or if he preferred Lewis to be the sole leader. So wait, so wait. He was getting paid to be a captain but was considered a lieutenant. Yes. Eh, screw it. I would have took it. Way <laughs> less responsibility. 
do you know how much pride there is in early 19th yeah, century? Yeah. That wasn't. Well, hey, Lewis, Lewis let him. He did. He did. Now, Clark, to his credit, doesn't leave. But it had to be a heck of a blow. But they agree to not tell the men. As far as Lewis was concerned, Clark was an absolute equal, and they're going to fix it after the fact. In fact, the Lewis and Clark were so tight-lipped about it, it would take seven years for the men on the expedition to realize that Clark was never the official co-captain. That's how tight-lipped they came. They took it. When the men read it, they were probably like, son of a... I listened to that guy. <laughs> Those two guys, I would only listen to the captains. Wait, wait what? No. <laughs> so finally, in May 1804, they leave St. Louis to cheers. This will be the last day they will see of civilization until they return. Bum, bum. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, until next time. Then they just walked away. All cool, like. Well, not all cool, like. They were actually just like, literally, they were shoving their rods into the bed. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> yeah, they're like cheering, and then like five hours later, Mom, do we have to keep cheering? Just keep cheering, honey. Just keep cheering. <laughs> Three. <laughs> Three members of the crowd have died. <laughs> like nobody can hear anyone. <laughs> it's really now just a bunch of slow claps. Actually, one of the members actually like forgot like his cell phone, and he went back twice to go get possessions. That's how slow they were moving. Mom, do we have to keep watching? <laughs> yes, dang it! See, they're zooming by. Yeah, I can see that picture. It's like a whole group of a whole crowd, and then all like you know, you just keep seeing it dwindle and dwindle. And people are sitting down on the riverbank, like, oh, <laughs> we're getting there, folks. I mean, ten miles a day. Come on, they can't be going too far. <laughs> so as they're either pulling, pushing, sailing, or rowing, and uh, whatever days, the days get pretty repetitive, as you would imagine. Lewis spent would spend a lot would probably really anger the men. Lewis would spend a lot of the time just walking along the shore with the keelboat and would focus on scientific observations, which should probably give you an example of how fast they were actually moving down the river. If Lewis could look at scientific observations and still be able to catch up by the end of the day. Bluebird sits on tree. Leaf with three petals. Oh, look, the boat's moved uh, four inches. Okay, <laughs> we have time. He, no, yeah, that was all just him sitting still. He just takes his step and he's right back in, right back in line with the boat. <laughs> Sir, we're leaving you behind. Okay, one second. One step. Okay, I'm here now. <laughs> Way to catch up, sir. <laughs> so Lewis would write and draw various plants and animals that were new to him and the expedition along the way. Even hunting expeditions would be used for scientific discoveries. They find a new flock of pelicans that they cover acres of land. They attempt to kill a coyote, and on August 12th, the soldiers fish and nearly catch 
500 fish of nine different species. God, that would be so interesting. You're like, nope, never seen this before. Nope, never seen this before. <laughs> well, also, you gotta you gotta think like, so like Lewis is also a meticulous note writer. So like, yes, this would all be very interesting to see. But there's over 40 men going into the wilderness. How much, and they're all pushing or pulling this boat. They need so much food. Right. They're they're constantly working out. They're working out all day. They're burning thousands of calories a day. In fact, we'll get to it later. On the plains, they're going to eat on average nine pounds of beef a day between them. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. For every one? Oh, no, for all of them? They ate that much a day? Yeah. That was the wait, average. Wait, the average per person? Per person. Was nine pounds? A day. Holy, what the heck? What did these guys look like? Uh, Greek gods, probably. <laughs> very tan, very in shape. Right. So among their discoveries, and we're going to jump the timeline just a bit because this is, this is too good not to share. They're near Boyd County, Nebraska, when the captains find themselves surrounded by a huge village of tunnels and small animals that would bury underneath them. These animals are everywhere. They would pop in out of their holes, they would sit on their hind legs, and they would chatter. They had never seen a prairie dog before. Aww. Excited at whatever these small little creatures were, the captains brought some men, and they start digging holes to the bottom of one of the tunnels. And after six feet... They start running a pole down, and they discover that they're not even halfway to the animal's bed. Oh, my goodness. So then they come up with plan two. (laughs) Smoke them out. (laughs) Opposite. They're going to flood them out. They find, they bring a whole bunch of water, and they part pouring down water down the holes. And eventually, they bring back one alive. They kill a few, which I'm sure was great. Nice little prairie dog massacre. But they bring back one identified, and they're actually going to send it back to Jefferson. Oh, wow. They caged it and ship it, huh? Kept it, yeah. I really hope they poked holes in the package. Probably, yeah. I don't think they had cellophane. So, yes, I think it was. <laughs> Just, wah, wah, wah. Bad joke, bad joke. <laughs> they did have cellophane. <laughs> However, during this time, as they're entering modern-day South Dakota, Lewis, for whatever reason, stops writing in his journals. Now, we haven't talked much about his mental health yet, but even Jefferson would describe that he would have that the family had a a melancholy among them. So it is widely believed that Lewis suffered from pretty severe depression. However, outside of these long absences, there's really only two or three occasions where you can actually point to depression. And even in those circumstances, there's going to be a lot of stress on him at that point. But just know, even throughout all of this, through all of the discovery, through all of pushing through, he is likely suffering from depression and battling his mind the entire way. 
Again, as they're still only making 10 to 15 miles a day, the day is still getting very repetitive for these very immature young men who tend to get drunk whenever the captains aren't looking. So then punishments need to start being handed out. Punishment for one private who was found drunk was about 50 lashes. Damn. For drunkenness. They're whipping the dudes in the back? In the back. Another gets gets 50 lashes for stealing whiskey. But the worst went to Private Alexander Willard, who was charged with lying down and sleeping on guard. Which, fair enough, that's not okay. As you're going into native land, uh, territory you're not familiar with. If this was the typical military, this would be a capital punishment. Willard is given a hundred lashes for the offense. Can I do it all at different times? Can I do like 20 a day for like five days or <laughs> no, no. So he literally, what, uh, is it like I've seen in like the movies, they tie him to like something with his arms spread, take his shirt off and just sit there and watch, watch, watch. I don't believe so, but for your sake of it, yes, that's absolutely what happened. Goodness. I mean, to be fair, like, that is very dangerous that they all could have technically died. Well, that's just it. Like, if if you're really going to lay on a punishment, it better be for that, for lying down and sleeping on guard. Now, Willard would admit that he lied down, but he wasn't sleeping. And I think the answer from the captains was like, what difference does that make? <laughs> right. Like, okay, thanks. Yeah, great. What is it? What, what is lying down going to do? Like, even if your eyes are open, like you're lying down. Right. Yeah, not great. So uh, after the first initial, this initial batch, and the men realize that the lashes is uh, not pleasant to go through, discipline becomes a lot better. You're really not going to see this again from the men for the rest of the trip. The captain sent a message, and it was delivered. Hey, it only takes one or two. Yeah, sure did. In August 1804, after crossing the Platte River, they're now 600 miles past uh, when they left St. Louis. They're now starting to enter Indian territory, and they will make first contact. Lewis was prepared to meet with the first band of Native Americans. Remember, when Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Territory, he made it very clear to Lewis that good relations with with the tribes was key to the success of the mission. Now, back then, it was about just trading with them, but now there's a new point to their mission. They're now telling them that the Americans now owned this territory. Now, you still may see the British, you still might see some French traders, but we're the owners. We are now in control of this land. Lewis would then spend a substantial amount of the line of credit offered him by Jefferson in purchasing trading goods. Most of those goods consisted of muskets and gunpowders, but also mirrors, scissors, brass buttons, and well as many other things that, James, that according to James Rondo, would say, quote, these things 
everything from ivory combs to calico shirts represented that the United States offered a potential trading partner. As Jefferson repeated in every delegation of Western Indians, Americans sought commerce, not land. Lewis and Clark were on the road to show American wire, American wares. The expedition was the mercantile and hardware display case for the entire trading empire on the move. They're in a way traveling salesmen. With a bunch of rinky dink trinkets. Went well, a lot of trinkets, which is going to come up later. <laughs> you get a comb. You get a comb. You get a mirror. You get some whatever. And not to spoil anything, but they're like, great. I love this comb. How about some gunpowder, please? How about some <laughs> <to> help us hunt? Because <laughs> that would really be better, wouldn't it? Would it is this comb going to kill a beep? Or... <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Other than being traveling salesmen as part of the expedition, they would also show off the military might of the incoming United States. They would often show off the air gun because it was probably really cool to show that off. But just as important, they would show just how effective their long rifles could be. If that didn't work, they would then fire the cannon. Everything they could do to say, look at this technology we have. Probably better not fight us if we keep coming up, the more of us keep coming up. This is what you're going to run into. They would then start entering a ceremony. The ceremony itself was likely based off of what Clark had seen during the negotiation of Greenville in 1795. The ceremony would repeat itself with every tribe they met. The captains would be in full uniform. Lewis delivered a long speech, about 2,500 words, which may have taken him a half hour to deliver. And then they would add another half hour for the translator to translate the message. Lewis would then supervise the preparation of the gifts, and then they would move on. Clark report, recorded some of the speech that said, quote, Children, we have been sent by the great chief of the 17 great nations of America to inform you that the great council was lately held between us and his great chief and your father, the French and the Spaniards. He would then go on to say, that the United States is now in control of this territory. Lewis would then continue, quote, they are bound to obey that they, as in the Corps of Discovery, they are bound to obey the commands of the great chief of the president who is now your only great father, children, your only father. He is the only friend of whom you will now look for protection or from whom you can ask favors and receive good counsels. He will take care of you and serve you and not deceive you. Lewis would then explain the purpose of the expedition. Children, the great chief has sent us to clear the road, remove any obstruction, and to make it a road of peace between himself and his red children residing there, to inquire its natures and its wants. So generally, we're here to let you know more people are coming. Make peace with us and everything will be fine. Fight with us and you're not going to get traded with. And which likely means you're going to starve. It is a, literally a legitimate threat. <laughs> Deal with us or starve out. Or worse, we will attack you kind of thing. After the end of the speech, then the trading of gifts would commence. For the most part, the gifts, like we talked about, they're nice. 
but the tribes kind of want more. It's great to have beads. It's great to have these trinkets. But ball and muskets would be better. But that's the one thing the expedition is never going to willingly give up. Because that is what they're going to quite literally need from this point all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Right, they need it for hunting, protection, whatever. They don't know what's out there. Yes, which is honestly fair enough. If there's one thing, at least they have a good reason for not trading all of those things. It's not like they were arms dealers that just had cases upon cases of weapons. Correct. (laughs) So, yeah. um, In general, that speech is a little bit more... Upon reflection, I mean, not even with hindsight, it's not a great speech because it's basically saying there's a new power in town. Move over or be ran over. You will only listen to this person or else. Right. Play nice with us and it'll be fine. Don't play nice with us and it's we're going to come after you. Have all these 50 cent gifts. <laughs> but but would it make you make it make yourself feel better if they handed out a peace medal at the end of it? Oh, so much better? better. So much better. Now, I make it all worth it. I haven't described the metal yet. So maybe maybe does the metal ki- does the metal kill uh, buffalo and uh, like help in any way, shape, or form? No, but it has a really nice picture of Jefferson on it. Awesome. And, and then on the back side, it has uh, two arm shaking or two hand shaking. Cool. I want it. Isn't that something worth it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, they thought the same. <laughs> So we won't go into every time that they go into a tribe, but just know it's going to be that speech followed by that pattern and so on and so forth. We are here. I'm going to give a long speech. We're going to fire a cannon. We're going to trade with you and then we're going to go on. So in between tribes, this is probably where we need to bring up that the men really are on their own out there, not only for hunting, which they're more than capable of doing, but when you think of... There's 40-plus men out there, and Lewis is the only doctor going into unknown into unknown land. Well, not really unknown at this point, but going into unfamiliar land. Even at this point, even the best doctor in the world isn't that well-equipped. There's little they can do. Lewis really can only... Give some ales, find an herb, or give out Rush's Thunderbolt, the laxative. Lewis, according to Clark, even almost poisons himself on the way there. (laughs) Clark wrote on August 22nd, Captain Lewis improving the quantity of the minerals after near poisoning himself by the fumes and taste. The unknown mineral to the men may have been arsenic. Oh, geez. So he almost—he he definitely could have killed him. Now, this is, might be one of the only times that prescribing Rush's Thunderbolt actually worked because that cleared him out real quick, I guess. And then he does eventually recover. Lewis had little time to focus on his own ailments between because days after and during his recovery, Sergeant Charles Floyd becomes ill with what Lewis diagnosed with the bilious colic. When in reality, 
it was likely a burst appendix. There was literally nothing Lewis could do, nor any doctor in the time period could have done for Floyd. And he dies on August 20th, 1804. I mean, you need surgery. Yes. For a burst appendix. Yeah, there was nothing they could do for him. He was going to die. And it just happened all of a sudden as, you know, burst appendix. appendix. He is the first member of the Corps of Discovery to die. Stephen Ambrose points out that Sergeant Floyd is the first soldier to die west of the Mississippi River. Lewis read out the funeral, and Clark would write in his journal that, quote, this man at all times gave us proofs of his firmness and determined resolution to the service of his country and to honor himself. The next day, or end quote, the next day, the men named the next river Floyd's River, and the bluff holding Floyd's remain is now known as Floyd's Bluff, which you could actually go visit today in Sioux City, Iowa, if you're in the area. A couple days later, Patrick Gass is voted sergeant in order to replace Sergeant Floyd. And that very somber note is where we're going to leave the core of discovery for today. How many more men will die? You got a prediction? Tune in next week for the Literally. Literally. But I'm going to say, if I had to guess how many men are going to die, I'm going to say eight. Eight? Mm-hmm. Bloodbath. How? I want how. Point Did you say out. that's a bloodbath? Yeah, well, eight. You think eight are going to die? Okay, <laughs> so I think four are going to die in a Native American attack. Okay. I think two are going to die of disease. I think one's going to die of a drowning. And one's going to die of poisoning. I guess we'll see if that holds up. Until next week. That's right. Next time, we'll pick up the story. All right. So thank you guys for listening to this episode. Probably wanted to just do... Uh, we talked about a little bit last episode. But if you haven't, or if you don't know... We're actually part of a, uh, this formula we use, it's the Rex Factor formula. Uh, we're in this with another set of, of podcasts. And recently, Battle Royale, who does all of the French Monarchs, invited us onto their show uh, to celebrate their one-year anniversary. So uh, it was a lot of fun. We just kind of got, just kind of caught up, see what it was like podcasting and all of that good stuff. It was nice putting faces names. So we did talk about this in our recap episode. But if you haven't, or if you ended up just skipping that episode, uh, go check out Battle Royale. Uh, they're pretty good. We talked about they did. Uh, they've had Charlemagne. They've done Charles Martel. If you wanted for jumping points, and then on that episode as well was Tudoriferous. So if you wanted to check them out, they are doing all of the Tudors, or basically the 15th century at this point. So go give them a listen after you get done listening to this one. While you're waiting for us until next week. So until next time. I'm Eric. I'm Matt. Ciao, bella. Italian. <laughs>